0: Good morning, ECC. It is good to see you all. I hope you're having a wonderful day so far. Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. We'll actually start reading from Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 and go all the way down to Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. And as you're turning there, let me take this opportunity to remind you about our congregational prayer that's going to be today at 6 p.m. In Main Hall 2, our congregational prayer is a time where we come together and pray together. Our brother, Alan Manzaneras, is going to be sharing um, about how the church you helped him plant in Manila is going. So let me encourage you to come for that and many other prayer points that we are going to be thinking through and praying through this evening. Jonah chapter 1 from verse 17 and we'll read to chapter 2 verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, I shall again look upon your temple. The waters closed in over me to take over my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land Will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than a double edged sword. Write these words on our hearts, O God. Help me step out of your way. Speak to me and speak through me to the end that all our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine you owned and bought a brand new Bugatti Veyron. If somehow you had enough money to buy a Bugatti Veyron, and if you don't know what that is, a Bugatti Veyron is a very nice, very expensive, very fast car. And You have this Bugatti Veyron. The friend of yours, good friend of yours, says, hey, can I borrow the car? And you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. we can be a little bit reckless, but you're like, "Nah, I, I trust him. And you give him the car, and you just remind him, you give him very clear instructions. Now, this is a Bugatti, which means a little gas, and this thing will fly. So don't accelerate, don't be too heavy on the gas, don't break the speed limits. Yes, yes, yeah, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And you let your friend go, drive his Bugatti Veyron. After a couple of hours, you receive... A call from the police, and they're like, uh, Sir, are you the owner of Bugatti Veyron number plate X? You're like, Yes. Uh, well, it has currently blown six or seven different speed traps, and the, the driver managed to land himself into a tree, and your car is totaled. Tell the truth. What would you do to your friend? Actually, maybe you shouldn't share that. Just keep, uh, keep it to yourself, right? For most of us, we would not have a good reaction to our friend. Very often, we think of ourselves as the driver of the Bugatti Veyron and God as the owner of the Bugatti Veyron. And we think that God will do to us what we would do to our friend in such a situation. You landed yourself in a mess. You destroyed my car. You are going to spend the rest of your life paying for it. And the tickets as well. And we think that's how God will treat us. But what I hope we see really throughout this book, but especially in chapter 2 of Jonah, is that what you will constantly meet, what we will constantly meet, is a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve. A God who is rich in mercy and gracious and compassionate. Even with the rebellious prophet who has landed himself in a mess. Last week we talked about the running prophet. God told Jonah, go, and Jonah said, no. And he landed himself, thrown overboard, and now swallowed up by a fish. Jonah, as you will see, is now not just the running prophet, he's the praying prophet. From the belly of this fish, he prays a very important prayer. And what I'm hoping you see in Jonah's story here from chapter 2, but especially in his prayer, is that he moves from distress to deliverance. He moves from his self-inflicted distress and eventually turns onto God's instituted deliverance. So, Jonah chapter 1 from verse 17, we'll just dive into it. If you're looking for two mental handles, think about distress and deliverance. God uses our self-inflicted distress To bring us back to him. In Jonah chapter 2, first of all starting in chapter 1 verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You kind of have to see the irony all over this book. The only person disobeying God is Jonah. The mariners obey God eventually. The fish obeys God. Jonah has other plans. And Jonah is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The narrator wants us to draw our attention there to think about how long he was in this fish. It wasn't just a few minutes or a few seconds. He was there a while, three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the sheep, say fish, sorry, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Jonah is in open distress. He's not hiding it. Jonah has realized that he has picked a fight with an omnipotent God, and like anyone who picks a fight with an omnipotent God, they lose in spectacular fashion. Jonah is distressed. He has been infinitely outmatched by an infinitely matchless God. And in the belly of this fish, he calls out in his distress because he realizes he's on death's door. He's not just in distress, he's right at death's door. Listen to what he says in chapter 2 verse 2. I called out of the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol was the realm of the dead. That's a Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. Skip down to verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, the weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, now in the Hebrew mind, the sea was a place of utter chaos and darkness and evil. Generally speaking, the Hebrews would not go to the sea, and generally speaking, therefore, they would not swim. Here is Jonah, has been hurled into the realm of chaos and darkness and evil, and he is quite literally drowning. He is knocking on death's door. Sheol, the realm of the dead, is about to swallow him. He's distressed. He's at death's door. And he rightly recognizes that everything happening to him is from God's hand. The repercussions he's finally facing now, as a result of his rebellion, have a source. God himself, look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah doesn't think this is coincidence. Jonah knows this is providence. Jonah doesn't think this is just happenstance. He knows that the person who held the storm, the person who held him overboard, the fish that swallowed him, the tempestuous sea, all of this is God's doing. God is sovereignly in charge of everything happening to Jonah right now. And unsurprisingly, Jonah feels abandoned. Verse 4, Then I said, as he's knocking on death's door, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Now think about that statement for a sec. Jonah, did God drive you away from his presence? Or were you fleeing God's presence? In chapter 1, we are told it is Jonah who was running away from God. God never drove him out of his presence. Jonah feels as though he's abandoned, but nothing about what God is doing indicates that Jonah has been actually abandoned. And that's one of the good things about Psalms and prayers, that Jonah can take these feelings of distress and pain and abandonment and reverently be real with God about this pain and distress and feelings of abandonment. One theologian said, the Psalms are the anatomy of a believer's soul. Every emotion you and I have or will ever feel is locked into the Psalms. It is a way of powerfully conveying even our most negative emotions in a reverent, but in a very real way to the Lord. And that's what Jonah does. He says he feels abandoned. He feels ditched. He's in distress. He's knocking on death's door. To be clear, his distress is self inflicted. And even in his self inflicted distress, the Lord doesn't abandon him in his distress, the Lord climbs into his distress with him. I don't know how you were raised. depending for different people, it might be different. But I know for many of us, how we were raised is, your mother will tell you as a child, don't play there because you'll fall down and get hurt and you'll start bleeding. Don't play there, okay. And what would we do? Go play there and fall down and get hurt and start bleeding. Right? Now, usually, when you've already fallen down and you've cut your skin and you're bleeding and you're running to mom like, "Hey, Mom, I'm bleeding. She'd be like, yeah, come, come, just come, keep coming. As she's removing her (laughs) slipper. Yeah, come. And once you're finally here, what did I tell you to do? You did not do one for disobeying me. Oh, now you're hurt. Why are you hurt? And then now we have to buy Elastoplas to bandage your wounds. That's a lot of money on this global economy. You're now being spanked for the global economy. And very often, we take those lenses and take that image of our parents and plaster it on God. So that in our distress, rather than run to him, we think twice, lest he spank us. But God is not like you and I. In our distress, we run to him. We don't say, I've messed up, I can't tell my father. We say the opposite. I've messed up, I must tell my father because he's climbed into my distress and into your distress with us, we run to him in our distress. So, so where have you and I brought upon ourselves distress? Where is your self-inflicted distress? Is it in your relationships? A friend who you completely betrayed, you know and she knows that you are more like Judas and less like Jonathan. You've blown it. Now what? Run to Christ. Run to him. Are you a parent and you've blown it with your children? You've done things, said things that makes it clear they shouldn't respect you. And maybe they even don't. Now what? Just run away from the situation and say, ah. No. You run to God in your self-inflicted distress. In my self-inflicted distress. Maybe you've blown it in your finances. You've made bad and even foolish financial decisions that have compromised your own financial health and the financial prospects of your family and your children. And now you're in financial distress. Now what? We run to the God who cares for sparrows. And he cares for you far more than sparrows. Maybe you've blown it in your workplace. You've underperformed or just flat out misperformed. And now your department or your company is compromised because of you. Now what? In our distress, we run to the Lord. We run to him. And this is why Jonah is able to cry out to the Lord. Because he knows who the Lord is. In his distress, listen to what he does in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. In verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet, and here is his declaration of faith, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He recognizes that the only place he can go to is to the Lord, and he runs there knowing that he will be heard. Friend, God is far more eager to hear you than you are willing to pray. God is far more willing to climb into your distress with you than you are willing to figure out that distress on your own and run away from him in your distress. Jonah cried to the Lord. He looks to his holy temple. And here is where we start seeing a turning point for Jonah. From his distress we start seeing a deliverance happen for Jonah. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Jonah is drowning. Jonah is in the sea about to die, knocking on death's door. Sheol is about to swallow him up, but instead, a fish appointed by the Lord swallows him up. A rescue appointed by the Lord, a deliverance appointed by the Lord swallows him up so that Sheol does it. Now, to be clear, the Lord's deliverance was not necessarily rosy. Can you imagine being in the inside of a fish? It's cold, dark, claustrophobic, acidic stomach juices washing all over you and bleaching you and burning you up in the process, fish entrails all over you. But this was part of God's journey with the prophet to help him see that his only hope can, can be found only in the Lord. Jonah knows as long as he is still breathing, that means he is not in hell the Lord would deliver him. And not only that, verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, here's what Jonah did. I remembered the Lord. Jonah remembered Yahweh. Now, just a quick reminder, when you see in our Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's God's name. It's Yahweh. Jonah remembers who Yahweh is. Is He remembers that he has a covenant God. The other nations couldn't call God Yahweh. No, that name was reserved for Israel alone. He would be their God. They would be his people. And because of that covenantal relationship, Jonah knows, Exodus 34, that Yahweh, the Lord, is a God who is slow to anger, abounding in compassion and mercy and gracious. He knows that to come to the Lord, to remember Yahweh, to remember who the Lord is, is to remember that he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he is kind. That's why he can call him Yahweh, my covenant Lord. When my son was younger, he's still young, but when he was really, really young, and still learning how to say words. His vocabulary wasn't that big. He knew maybe four or five words. He likes the word grape because he likes grapes. He likes eating grapes. And he knew very few words. And as he was learning his words, I remember one day I came home. And, you know, I say, I say hi to my wife. And then I came to him and I said, hi, Louie, And he said, hi, babe. And I was like, whoa. Wait. <laughs> you do not get to call me babe. Not now. Not ever. Only one person gets to call me babe. Only one. Because I have a covenantal relationship with her. Now, I can't blame him. He was just repeating what his mother said. Therefore, I was now babe. But one person in the world has every right to call me babe because of our covenantal relationship. Because of the relationship Jonah had with the Lord because of the relationship a believer has with the Lord. We can run to our covenant God and say, help. And he hears in a special way because he is our God and we are his people. Jonah not only remembers who the Lord is, he recognizes what happens When we pursue idols, look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In the Lord, in Yahweh, what Israel had, what the believer had, is steadfast hope, covenantal love. But those who pursue idols, those who run after idols, forsake their hope of that kind of love. Now, it might help here to define what an idol is. Usually when we hear the word idol, we think something made of wood or of stone or of metal that people kind of bow down to and chant, right? And that is true. That is definitely a form of idolatry. You see that all over the Old Testament, that God is upset that his people are committing spiritual adultery by worshiping gods who are mute. They are deaf, they are dumb, they don't hear, they don't speak. But there's another kind of idolatry, That's far more insidious. That's far more sneaky. That's far more invisible. An idolatry from the heart. And this is what that idolatry is. Idolatry is when we love anything more than God, when we want anything more than God, when we pursue anything more than God. Put differently, an idol is when we take a good thing Make it a God thing, and so it becomes a bad thing. When we take a good thing that that, that is just an ordinary good thing, but we look to that good thing to give us meaning, significance, identity, life. We look to that thing to give us things that only God can and should be giving us. And it is sneaky. Because as one theologian put it, the human heart is an idol factory. In my sinful state, if I can love something more than God, want something more than God, pursue something more than God, I will look for that thing almost always. And I will justify it to myself. As we pursue those idols, like any idols, they always overpromise and underdeliver. They promise pleasure and leave us bored. They promise fulfillment and leave us bitter or in pain. So what are your idols? What are my idols? Here are some questions that might help. What have you sacrificed most to get or have in your life? Because there's a direct relationship between idolatry and sacrifice. We desire, rather we pursue most what we desire the most. What have you pursued more than anything? Work? Marriage? Children? Again, not bad things, but we've made them ultimate things to give us meaning, significance. Where do you go when things don't work in your life? The bar? The bottle? The porn site? There's an idol hanging behind that. Because we are going to look for something in these places that we should be going to God for. What do you wish people knew about you? Whatever that thing is, it's probably an idol hanging out there. What would crush you if it was taken away from you? A talent? Your good looks? For many of us, the mirror is our biggest idol. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you know, I know, we all know that your pursuit of idols has left you unsatisfied. Let me just ask you a question, honestly, one sinner to another, after pursuing a godless, sinful, lecherous life, After pursuing, climbing the ladder of success, after pursuing whatever it is you're currently pursuing, can I just honestly ask you, are you happier now? Have you finally found what you're looking for? If the answer to that question is no, then you're in good company. All of us tried, and all of us failed. Because your soul and my soul, the human soul, is too heavy a thing to be held up and lifted into eternal significance by the twigs of idols. Like climbing the ladder of success only to find out you are leaning against the wrong wall. What we were designed to do is have a meaningful relationship with an eternal God. As Augustine put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. And the pursuit of idols is just another example of us chasing vain things and forsaking our hope of steadfast love. Jonah turns this corner, recognizing his deliverance. And in verse 9, he says, But I, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Question, where did we last see people sacrificing and making vows? Ah, the previous chapter. The mariners. The pagans. And you almost want to look at Jonah and say, took you long enough. He could have done this at any point. On the boat, while he was getting thrown over. But rebellious Jonah has realized, no, I am going to give myself, give my life, truly turn to God. Truly turn to Yahweh. Now to be clear, his repentance is real, albeit imperfect, as you will see in chapter 3 and 4. He shifts back and forth, but it is a real repentance. Like your repentance and like my repentance, all of our repentance is affected by our sin. It is imperfect, but we keep repenting. We keep, if you will, spiritually falling forward, looking to God, turning away from vain idols and turning to the one who is our hope of steadfast love. Jonah sacrifices and makes these vows, and he says, what I have vowed, I will pay. And the next line, one of my favorite, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. He recognizes that whether in the sea Or in the belly of a fish, the only deliverance he will ever get is not going to come from any human agency or some power he has. It has to come from God alone. Salvation, deliverance, comes, belongs to the Lord, Yahweh, alone. In fact, that word salvation or deliverance in Hebrew is the word Yeshua. You get words like Joshua and Yeshua and Jesus from. Salvation comes from the Lord, and after that declaration, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And by the way, there you have to kind of see the humor in in what the author is doing. Usually people eat some bad fish and throw up. Here was a fish that ate a bad prophet and threw up. Salvation... Belongs to the Lord and Jonah is actually saved. But something greater than Jonah is here. And that's what we read earlier from Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. And here's what it says. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In the same way, Jonah was in his distress and called out to the Lord. Jesus in his distress One who is not just a prophet, but far greater than a prophet. One who is God himself in flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in flesh, called out to God in his distress, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And even when they were crucifying him, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. Unlike Jonah, he didn't run away from his enemies. He ran toward his enemies. Jonah, who brought God's wrath upon himself, Jesus did not bring God's wrath upon himself, but bore the wrath of God on behalf of sinners and cried out for their forgiveness. Jonah knocked on death's door. Jesus died and did duel with death. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. Jesus was in the belly or the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jonah was vomited out of a fish. Our king wasn't vomited out of a fish. He walked out of a grave with a resurrection body, eternally indestructible, forever to reign, never to die again. And for those who turn away from their sin and trust in him, they have an eternal security. They show up in Revelation chapter 7 from verse 9 and 10. And here's what it says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation like Nineveh, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs To our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And you and I read that and we have to ask, how did they get there? Answer. They believed in the one who was far greater than Jonah. They believed that salvation, Yeshua, Jesus, God's salvation comes from Yahweh comes from the Lord. They recognized his death as bearing the wrath of God for their sin, turned away from their sin and trusted in him. But believer, this is you. That there is a God who even in your distress will deliver you, not only in this life, but safely bring you home. That throughout your life and my life, we will have self-inflicted distress, but he will never give up on you. There is far more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. And he is more eager to forgive you than you are to sin against him. He will bring you home. His grace is such that when we were covered in the filth of our sin, he didn't take us to the shower of his mercy. He took us to the ocean of his grace. Endless supply for our pardon and our powerful new living. So will you and I ever have moments where we are not distressed, where we have not brought self-inflicted distress upon ourselves? No. But we serve a God who will climb into that distress with us and deliver us through his Son. So where have you brought distress upon yourself? Look away from your distress and look to your deliverer. The saying is that if you want to be depressed look at a past you can't change. If you want to be distressed, look at a future that you have no control over. If you want to be disoriented, look around you to a world that's going crazy. But if you want to be delivered, look up. The same way Jonah looked up to the Holy Temple. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, recognize that your distress, your self-inflicted distress God is sovereign over that. He's using that to bring you to himself. God is sovereign over that. And he's saying to you, as he did, as one poet put it in the 1800s, "Tis true I am the vilest, blindest, weakest, yet I am the one that God seekest. Come home, and he will bring you safely home. And as a church, sometimes we might feel, I've blown it. I've not been here in two years. I've blown it. I've not been the best church member. I've blown it. Self-inflicted distress that has affected the people around me. What does God say? Come. Climbs into that distress and offers us deliverance. So as we close let me remind you of this gracious God who has grace greater than all our sin, greater than all your inflicted and my self-inflicted sin. It is grace so amazing, so divine. It demands my life, my love, my all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help us rest in you and the grace you have provided through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us turn away from our sin and trust in you for those who don't know you. Even now, Lord, would you save because salvation belongs to you. Would you save your own, bring them to yourself even now. And for the rest of us, would you remind us in our distress, we can always run to you, that you will deliver, you will save, you will help, because salvation belongs to you, and you have provided grace enough to do it. In Jesus' name we pray.